Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trighauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. What does it take to uproot yourself and move your entire life to another part of the world? It's a decision people make for a variety of reasons, where war and hunger, but also hope and prospects matter. Concretely, this means thinking about family, income, job opportunities, working conditions, and so on. In the project Migration for Welfare, or WellMig, researchers looked specifically at nurse migration in Norway from three countries, Sweden, Poland, and the Philippines. This was an RCN-funded FreePro project led by Norwegian social research, NOVA, at Oslo Met. Many nurses working here in Norway have migrated from other parts of the world. Why did they move, and what did they experience when they begin working life in a new context? Today, I'm speaking with Marta Bivan Erdal and Lubomiła Korzoniewska, who interviewed Filipino and Polish nurses and wrote an article comparing Filipino versus Polish nurse migrant experiences. Marta Bivan Erdal is a research director at PRIO. She's a human geographer who combines research on migration processes and transnational ties with research on living together in culturally and religiously diverse societies, focusing on citizenship and nationhood. Lubomiła Korzoniewska holds a master's degree in psychology from the University of Gdansk, Poland, where she completed an extended study program in cross-cultural psychology and psychology of gender. Korzoniewska has gained her research experience within a range of international projects carried out in Norway and Poland. Her research relates to thematic areas of migration and the Norwegian welfare state. She currently works as a research coordinator at Tannhelsetjenestens Kompetansecenter Øst, the oral health center of expertise in eastern Norway. Welcome back to the podcast, Marta, and welcome to the podcast, Milka. Nice to see you again. Uh, today we're going to talk about nurse migration. The two of you wrote an article uh, that was titled "Deskilling Unpacked, Comparing Filipino and Pol- Polish Migrant Nurses' Professional Experiences in Norway. But let's start a little more generally. So, Marta, who is a nurse migrant or a migrant nurse? What does this actually mean? What is this phenomenon? Thanks, Indigo. Great to be back. And uh, this is actually an, a sort of a key essential question. And it might sound quite simple in a way, in the sense that, of course, a nurse migrant is probably a nurse who's migrated. But then, of course, we know from migration studies that defining a migrant isn't that simple, but I'll, I'll leave that aside right now. But how do we then define a nurse? Uh, and this is actually quite a, a key issue. So globally, there's a lot of health worker migration, and we know that um, many countries, including Norway, are really dependent on people coming to Norway from abroad to work in the health sector, both as nurses, but also in in other health professions. But then when they come to Norway, what do they bring with them? They might bring with them uh, a degree from their country of origin or from a third country. So in in our case here, a, a nursing degree. But that doesn't automatically translate them into an authorized nurse we can work in the Norwegian health sector. So it becomes quite complicated in that sense because you could be a nurse who migrates to Norway, say, from the, uh, from the Philippines or from Poland that we've been uh, looking at specifically, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can work as a nurse in Norway. So you might have to maybe then work uh, in the health sector, but as an auxiliary nurse, for instance, so below your, your actual um, degree level. Uh, or you might actually not be able to work in the health sector at all and find completely different work uh, in other sectors. And that might be because you want to, 
or it might be because you're constrained by the system and you're not actually able to. So this very question, in a way, cuts straight to the core of, of the research that we've been, uh, been engaging with. And just to provide a little bit of context in terms of the, the international questions here, um, the World Health Organization has views on this because there has been uh, you know, an increasing focus on the wave of elderly people in the global rich north and the fact that we'll need more healthcare workers of different sorts going forward. But at the same time, we know that there's an increasing need also for healthcare professionals in the global south with increasing levels of, of children surviving, thankfully. But of course, they need to also be followed up, right? So there's a demand for healthcare workers globally. Uh, and there's in inequalities in terms of where you can get those um, degrees. And there's inequality in terms of what you can earn where in the world as a healthcare professional. So there are some quite sort of profound questions in terms of of global equality and, and healthcare workers. Uh, and, the, and the WHO has uh, quite a strong view on, on the fact that we shouldn't be you know, stealing away healthcare workers from the global south to the global north. And then there's a perspective of what about those people themselves? Shouldn't they have a say in it in terms of where they can live and work and, and prosper and support their own families? So there are some quite sort of central dilemmas here which have to do with with migration, but also global inequalities and many more other questions as well. You're kind of already getting into this, but I wanted to follow up with why is this important to study? Uh, but maybe we can just drill down a little bit. I mean, what drew you to this topic um, that that made it so interesting for you? Because, of course, there's so many professions that one could could study the migration of. So how did you kind of get into this specific topic? Yeah, you're right. And I think the sort of connections between work and migration uh, are really central, uh, both because of the sort of systemic level that I was speaking about, that, that you know we need certain skills and, and workers in the economies in different parts of the world, but also because it's about who people are. And we'll come back to this as well in terms of, of you know people's professional identities as, as workers as well, which, which doesn't just cut to who, what work they can do, but actually to who they are uh, as well in a way. But I guess for, for us engaging in this project, it was, it was part of uh, you know, developing a collaborative project with, with other colleagues as well on, on nurse migration and thinking about how migration is very much uh, discussed, I think, often in the immigration context as related to welfare in that immigrants need welfare services. But actually, the question here in a way was, these migrants are the ones who are contributing to welfare in an, you know, a society which understands itself often as an immigration society, so in the Norwegian context. Of course, we know it's, it's a more mixed picture, it's an immigration context as well, but that was kind of the, the sort of puzzle of putting upside down this idea that migrants, in a way, um, consume welfare services, if you will, but rather, in a way, saying, how are migrants contributing to produce welfare services, and in this case, as nurses in, in the Norwegian context, and how the different regimes of immigration uh, and of authorizing people's degrees, skills, work, or actually maybe not always work so well. Uh, and this links very specifically then to migration within the EU context, which is, of course, pretty much free, uh, versus migration from the outside of the EU into the EU and the EEA area, including Norway, where both the immigration rules, but also the authorization rules are quite different, and maybe more different than, than in a way the the empirical findings that we, we also have indicate that they are justified to be somehow. Hmm. So, Milka, you did interviews with Filipino and Polish nurses in Norway, and this was pre-pandemic, we should specify just so that people know, um, and we'll, we'll get into the um, 
pandemic question later with a little bit of speculation, perhaps. Um, but what were the similarities and differences between the two nationalities uh, when you when you did these interviews? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, let me start by saying something about the differences because they were quite obvious for us, some of them, at least the structural ones. As Marta mentioned earlier today, uh, there are different immigration and authorization rules for for nurses trained within EU and outside of EU. But I'll start with the immigration rules. So if we have a Polish nurse who wants to migrate to Norway, she can actually do that on her own. Um, Poland is part of EU, so you can freely move within the EU EEA area for the duration of within three months. And then you don't need any residence permission, any visa. Uh, For Filipino migrants, this situation is not that easy. You must apply for visa first. And this is when the immigration and authorization rules intertwine. Because if you are a Filipino nurse and you want to migrate to Norway and work as a nurse, well, there is demand for nurses, right? But in order to work as a nurse, you must get your authorization as a registered nurse in Norway. And at the moment of collecting our interviews, um, the nursing education in the Philippines was not considered equivalent to the Norwegian one. So it was pretty much impossible to get authorized from the Philippines. You would get a letter of rejection saying how many courses you must take, and then maybe you will get authorized as a nurse. So this is when the Filipino nurses must find alternative paths to, to get into Norway. And many of them followed the OPER scheme, which means that they applied for for so-called cultural exchange program uh, in Norway. So they lived with Norwegian families, uh, helping out with, with children and household duties, and then learning Norwegian, learning the culture. This is something that no Polish nurse has done. They were not, uh, you know, like the, their situation was so much different, so they didn't, didn't need to find those alternative paths. Uh, also, some Filipino nurses moved to Norway and started working as auxiliary nurses. Again, this is something very different from the Polish group. All Polish nurses got authorized more or less automatically. Um, so I think it's really in- inspiring and interesting to see how the two categories intertwine, like authorization and immigration. Um because for some Polish nurses, to give you an example, the process was really simple. Um, a few of my interviewees attended an intensive Norwegian course in Poland. And the course was organized by a recruiting agency. Recruiting agency sent the documents to the Norwegian Directorate of Health. So they, could, they got their authorization and they simply moved to Norway and started working more or less from day one. Uh, that's not the case for Filipino nurses. Some of my Filipino interviewees used up to seven years to get their um, their nursing authorization uh, in Norway. So these were the biggest differences, right? And when it comes to similarities, well, it was really striking in the data set too, because if we look at the differences and all the regimes, you clearly see that, well, Polish nurses in Norway and Filipino nurses in Norway have very different lives. But at the same time, when we were looking at the similarities in our data set, well, all the nurses were new to Norway at some point, right? So they were newcomers. All of them learned Norwegian as adults and the language difficulties also um, affected their professional experiences in Norway. To give you an example, 
it has happened that some patients or patients' families wanted to talk to a Norwegian nurse, not to a Polish nurse or not to a Filipino nurse. So this is shared experience of being non-Norwegian, foreign-born, speaking with an accent was common. Um, at the same time, like there's of course this elephant in the room, Polish nurses are white and Filipino nurses are non-white. And I don't want to dismiss um, similarities, but I want to acknowledge them. So, of course, race is an issue, but there is this shared experience of being foreign to Norway, of being non-Norwegian. And I found it really fascinating. And also the skilling, uh, which we discussed in the article we mentioned, Indigo. Um, when we talk about de-skilling, many people will give you this example, like very stereotypical example, a medical doctor driving a taxi. But we wanted to problematize it a little bit. Of course, one more obvious example is when a Filipino nurse works as an opera. She's educated, she has demanded qualifications, but at the same time, she's not able to work as a nurse in Norway. But if we look at some Polish nurses who moved to Norway with two specializations, with very long experience from a specialized hospital, and they work in a nursing home, a workplace with, which is less desired by Norwegian nurses. Is it the skilling per se? Sometimes it's difficult to assess that from an observer's perspective. You really need to talk to people and ask them how they understand that. Um, but I, I think it was very inspiring for me to, to really problematize this skilling in the article we wrote with Marta, because it has the, the skilling as a phenomenon has so many different faces. Uh, so I think and actually, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, could you define de-skilling really quick? Because, I mean, it sounds maybe a bit obvious, um, the word itself, but but what is your definition of de-skilling in this article, actually? So, well, <laughs> I think I'll try to say what de-skilling is in as simple possible, uh, in, in as simple formulation as possible. So as I understand de-skilling is a situation when human resources are not used in an optimal way. So, I, I, Marta, would you agree that this is the simplest way of saying that? So, yeah, again, not using the potential in an optimal way would be my definition of this skilling. And then, as you, you can see, it's quite a wide one. And, of course, there are so many scholars who have defined this skilling earlier on, doing it in, a, in a very different ways. But I really focus on this broad um, definition and then... Um, the dynamics around it, that, okay, this skilling at some point is a thing that, but maybe you can take some additional courses afterwards and there are possibilities for reskilling, upskilling, skilling. So, so we really problematize that in our article. I would agree, Milka. And I think also it's, it gets into sort of questions about what is, um, you know, competence. Uh, and there's always, you know, these discussions also in, in the context of, uh, of migration about whether we should be speaking about high skilled and low skilled, for instance, which I think we also were a little bit critical of, exactly because it's it's not that everything is relative, it is not. So people have degrees and they have formal competence. So we might want to speak about kind of formal and informal, recognized and, in, and unrecognized. Uh, and we might, might then also be able to better see the processual dimensions of this, but also that it is kind of relational and, and that for some people, um, the process of, of working uh, and of developing their professional identities over time, of course, interlinks with other goals they have in their life as well. Uh, and so they might kind of find contentment with a different mix of things in their life at different stages as well, 
which makes it very hard to measure in statistics, uh, but which is nonetheless very real, I think, and very sort of human and, and reflective uh, of those of those experiences. And also just as another point there to mention that what we found was interesting is, of course, and this is well known to people who look at this, but we hadn't really done that before. So when you migrate to Norway or to any country, in fact, right, you come with your life story, but you also very often come, come with your, your skills, your competence, your education, your work experience. But we don't have like a global database of CVs and like an updated system where any educational formal exam you take anywhere in the world is, is accessible in another country. So when you enter, for instance, Norway, Statistics Norway has a registry of all people who live in Norway, uh, but it only starts, of course, once you enter that registry, that database. So any education you take in Norway, whether or not you're born here, whether or not you're a citizen, will be in that database. But any education you haven't taken in Norway will not be there. And then if you apply for authorization, these things start to enter the system. But in fact, in Norway, like in many, many countries with a lot of immigration, we have no idea about the human capital, the human resources that are within our country in the migrant population. And I, I thought that was, um, you know, maybe I should have known about that as a migration researcher before, but with this with this research that we did with Miuka, this, this very basic point really was driven home in a very strong way because of this sort of idea that there's so much human capital that's there and we don't actually know what, what it is. And that seems to me a, it seems to me a puzzle why we don't do more to try and find out, because there might indeed be taxi drivers who perhaps are excellent taxi drivers, and, and that's good, but perhaps they also happen to have a physiotherapy degree as well. So maybe then we need them to, to work as physiotherapists if we're lacking that in, in, the, in, the, in the labor market. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on one thing that you discuss a little bit in the article, but maybe you can give a little more information, which is identity. Because towards the end of the article, you write that, um, that as a person with regards to your professional identity, being a nurse is neither contingent on nor determined by an authorization to practice as a nurse in a specific country. And I thought that was a really good point because it's just something that, that someone identifies with and it doesn't really matter that Norway or whichever country someone migrates to doesn't recognize it. They still are a nurse in, in their own eyes. Um, and I, I was just thinking that I can imagine this would be very alienating if you've gone through many years of education and experience and then you go somewhere where that's not recognized. And on a lesser scale, I've seen this with um, being around a lot of international students when I was doing my master's degree where people would try to get part-time jobs and they generally would get something that was very a very um, different job from what they probably could have gotten in their home country. So even though they had uh, maybe not necessarily a degree, but they had a lot of work experience or they had worked in something very different. They perhaps ended up being a waitress um, or a, a job that they didn't really identify with. And so I was just wondering if one of you would like to touch on this idea of professional identity and if that came up in your interviews, I'd be really curious to hear mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, if I may jump and jump in, I'll start on a little bit. Well, I think what is really interesting about identity is the two things here, self-labeling. So how you view yourself, how you see yourself, uh, and then the recognition you get or not from others. Um, and in their interviews I conducted, I, I talked to many nurses who were not considered registered nurses in Norway, but they felt nurses. 
and they would often say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm working as, as, as an auxiliary nurse now, but I am a nurse. I can do that job. And sometimes colleagues would recognize them as nurses anyway. So everybody knew, okay, you cannot do the nursing job here because it's not allowed. Um, the profession is law regulated, but we know you're a nurse. So maybe we can ask you for advice sometime. So, so sometimes the formal recognition, which was missing, was one thing. But on the other hand, you, you got this recognition from your colleagues who knew that you had that 20 years of experience or maybe two years of experience as a nurse. And you had the education which was necessary for you to, to have this knowledge, which was, uh, which was really desired in the workplace. So, uh, so I think that those two dimensions, self-labeling and recognitions uh, from others were really interesting for, for me to look at. Um, and then again, being a nurse means something else in different contexts uh, because culture plays an important role here. So uh, both Polish and Filipino nurses uh, were very satisfied with the fact that uh, nurses are highly respected in the Norwegian context. So as a nurse, you are respected as a highly qualified professional, medical professional who can propose a treatment, who can uh, who can be really independent when it comes to um, choosing a treatment for your patient. And this is really different from the Polish context and even more from the Filipino context where, um, where the doctors say you what to do if we say it in a very simple way, right? So this... Uh, independence, which was linked to the nursing profession in Norway, uh, was also something interesting. So the differences in how the cultural aspects uh, play an important role in exercising nursing profession uh, also linked to the identity issue, I think. Mm, that's so interesting. And it kind of links to the next question I want to ask you, Mika, which is why the nurses migrated to Norway specifically, the, the interviews, interviewees that you had. But because, I mean, it sounds like on the one hand, okay, if they feel like they're more respected, um, that's a really good thing. It sounds like it's a good working environment compared to maybe what they would have had in their in their home country or previous countries that they lived in. But on the other hand, especially for the Filipino nurses, I mean, it sounds like a really arduous process. So why would they then choose to come to Norway? <laughs> that was actually one of my favorite questions I asked my interviewees. So why Norway and where would you say your home is? Because those two would would often bring up very interesting personal stories into the picture. So, of course, as you mentioned, why Norway? Well, the work-life balance here is good and the quality of life here is good. And that was the shared view um, among Polish and Filipino nurses. But, but as you said, Filipino nurses had to struggle so much to get authorized in Norway. Why did they des- decide to continue? Well, I think that networks play an important role. So sometimes choosing Norway um, yeah, w- was connected to the fact that you already had a relative here, or maybe you had your elder colleague here. Um, sometimes you, you have committed so much to the idea of being a nurse in Norway. You spent two years as an opera learning the language, then you took the courses, then you started nursing education in Norway from scratch. So you have committed so much and you have invested so much, then you simply want to make this uh, make this happen. You really want to contribute as a nurse to the country. Sometimes people would simply say, well, 
my Norway is my new home. I like it so much. I like the landscape. I like the people. I like my networks. Religious communities have played an important role here too. So people felt rooted if they had connections to some informal communities too. So, so yeah, I think also some sort of fatigue, if we if we may mention it, that um, this is the point when I want to mention that several of our interviewees had so-called complex migration trajectories. So prior to their arrival in Norway, they had already been to other countries. So sometimes they had already learned yet another language. So uh, English, Norwegian, and one more language. Uh, one of my interviewees said, I'm done with learning languages. So she told me that oh, I'm, I don't want to move to any other place. I'll just stay in Norway and learn more Norwegian and stay here. I'm not moving anywhere else. Uh, so some sort of fatigue related to the sole fact of migrating from one place to another as an adult and all this investment related to learning the language and establishing networks. I think that played an important role too in choosing Norway after all. I mean, I really relate to that as well. Just the the investment of time and feeling like this is your home, but but if you get rejected from jobs or yeah, from getting maybe some kind of certifications or I mean, I was rejected from a master's program before I ended up doing the master's that I did. And but you feel like okay, I'm investing a lot of time in this. I speak Norwegian. Where am I going to use that? And yeah, so it's but it's really interesting to hear it in this context. And I also was reading some of the cases in the de-skilling article, and I saw that there was someone whose family moved to Norway, and then she. She came, she didn't really like it, and she moved back to the Philippines, but she missed her family. And I mean, I guess it, it can be as simple as that. And, uh, and and that's, I think, something that most people can relate to, despite, as you say, the difficulties in getting the authorization. Yes, and, and one more thing. Some Filipino nurses actually liked their new job as auxiliary nurses. They said, of course, that it's not optimal, that they wish they, they had this opportunity to to contribute to the community as nurses because they had the knowledge, they had the skills. But uh, due to a number of reasons, maybe they need to send remittances home, they decided not to take the step of the nursing track right now. But it doesn't mean that the the idea of working as a nurse in the future is uh, totally unrealistic, right? So they enjoy their current situation in yeah, as much as, as it is possible, right? Uh, um, but yet, yet again, there are different opportunities. And I think that I should say it out loud, this agency, this amazing agency I have seen among my interviewees, both the Polish one, uh, ones and Filipino ones, because you really need to be resilient to, to survive seven years uh, of this really bumpy road, you know, of applying for different jobs and applying for nursing authorization and finding new paths on how to stay in Norway, how to get a residence permission. Um, so I, I was so inspired by people who actually made that and inspired uh, by how resilient they were. I think also if I can add that it's interesting to think about the, uh, the sort of time perspective of it so we that was something that was very clear in in, in the interviews as well and and, uh, uh, and also in that Milka interviewed um, eight of our participants twice actually so with about a year in between because we realized that especially for the Filipinos there was so much going on with the paperwork and that the situation might change uh, but also for the Polish nurses who maybe were working as Milka was mentioning some of them through agencies and they were maybe planning for this to be quite temporary and then you know with the time investment into language learning 
um, and other factors playing in, it turned out that it maybe wasn't so so temporary after all. So we realized that also that, of course, people change their mind as they go along. And, you know, life happens, if you like. So maybe you have a partner, maybe you split up, maybe you meet someone new, maybe you have a child, maybe you don't. Uh, you know, and things change across the life course as well. And we were in a way expecting that maybe for some of the Filipino nurses, the end goal was actually not Norway, because that's what we've heard also from other studies and, and sort of historically, we know that, that Filipino nurse migration to the to North America, to US and Canada has been huge and still is. So we were sort of, you know, pondering this and sort of seeing would, would it come up or not. And it was really interesting to see how, you know, some of them actually also reflected on the fact that this initially may have been on the radar, but then gradually it actually changed over time. And I think from a research perspective, it's interesting uh, to recognize that, but I think also from a policy perspective, that you know, if you try and find out what, what what do people want, what are they likely to do, you really need to build into that system somehow that you know, if then two, three, five, seven years pass, their responses and their actions might actually change uh, in that time. Hmm, that is so interesting, and I, yeah, I guess life just kind of gets in the way, and you maybe end up doing something completely different than you expected. Um, Marta, I feel like we have to talk about the pandemic. Um, I, we can keep this pretty short because, uh, I don't like to make you speculate, but how has nurse migration been relevant to responses to COVID-19? I mean, I assume it has to be relevant to this. Yeah, well, definitely. And as you, as you say, I think both Mika and I are a little bit reluctant to speculate. Uh, you know, we did, we did the interviews, uh, well, before the pandemic, but at a more general level, I would say that in the context of, of Europe, and we know this both in Norway, there's been a lot of writing about this from the UK, from the United States uh, as well. A lot of nurses do have a migrant background, and a lot of nurses are of ba- migrant background where their parents migrated as well in these, these contexts. So the kind of minority proportions of, of nurses in many of the countries in, in Europe and also in North America is very high. And that, of course, means that it's it's relevant to sort of who are the key essential workers, the frontline workers actually fighting the pandemic, where this themes become uh, theme becomes important. And I think there it is relevant to reflect on, you know, what Mika was also saying about these different nurses' resilience and their agency, mm-hmm. uh, and for many of them, quite frankly, their sacrifice uh, in, in in you know in struggling to to remain a nurse also in an authorized sense, for instance, in a context like Norway. And I think also it's worth reflecting then on the fact that for many of them, as anyone else who in the pandemic has had their loved ones across the border, you haven't been able to visit. And very often, you know, as you know, as people who've been then located in one country, they've just had contact virtually uh, with their families in other contexts, which may have been more or less hit by the pandemic. So I think it's sort of interesting to reflect on at that level. Of course, we don't know with our interviews exactly how it impacted them. But clearly, there are important connections. And I think it it links to the ways in which uh, we value healthcare workers more generally, and then how we reflect on the value of migrant workers uh, in our labor markets. Uh, And, you know, the very basic point that, you know, labor is never a labor, it's always people, right? And how do we actually treat these people? And going forward, for instance, in terms of thinking about, hopefully, we'll, we'll not have many more pandemics, but pandemic researchers keep reminding us that these things do actually happen time and time again. So we shouldn't be surprised if they, they do return. How are we going to be prepared the next time? And how does the migration of healthcare workers feed into our preparedness going forward? And preparedness, you know, hopefully taking a global approach where we actually 
uh, acknowledge the, the asymmetries that are there, but, uh, but also don't only think about our own healthcare system, but global healthcare system. So I don't know what, what is happening within the World Health Organization on these debates now, but I'm assuming there is starting to be reflection now on going forward once we you know, emerge slowly in a year or two globally from the pandemic, what is the preparedness um, approach that we take and how does the migration of healthcare workers and the education of healthcare workers and perhaps also the authorization of healthcare workers going to um, to affect our preparedness and how can we do that better than what was what was the case in the past yeah well to wrap up here i just want to talk about labels a little bit because you brought this up um, a, a couple times in your in your notes and in your article, but maybe not so explicitly. And I, first of all, the word expat, um, that's kind of a, a bit of a loaded term, so I want to go into that. But also um, agency and how brain drain affects people's, I guess, experiences or, or move. Because you specifically say that you don't like to use the word brain drain, I think, um, or, or somewhere in your notes you said that. And so I know this is a, a few things to cover in the end, but I think it would be really interesting for people to hear kind of moving forward when they talk about these issues, the way, what, in what way we should talk about them and label them. So um, maybe I can throw this to you first, Milka, and then um, Marta, you can add in anything that we don't cover. But what is an expat versus an immigrant and and how do you think it's important to actually use these terms but then also going back to like i said this this agency thing that marta kind of brought up in the beginning and it applies as well to the pandemic what can we expect in terms of rules for people i mean what kind of restrictions can we really put on people or should we put on people who want to perhaps leave their their home country So I'll make a short intro about the labels, because I find them really interesting, because our world is contrast- constructed um, by labels that we use in our language, right? So let me start by saying that some people never moved, but they are called migrants. Let's say second generation migrants, right? And some people move constantly, but they are never called migrants. They're called expats. So this says, this. Uh, why am I saying this? Um, it says something about how we view the world and how we view uh, migrants uh, as a specific group, right? And um, in a short note, we wrote together with Marta, we reflect upon this um, notion of an expat and we argue that it's a class-bound term, which is mostly used, applied to white men who travel across the globe and use English as the main language of instruction at work, right? Um, and we started wondering about why those fantastic, educated, skilled nurses are so rarely called expats, right? They are highly educated. They have desired qualifications. They can more or less work anywhere across the globe because the shortages um, are so uh, significant. But apparently nurse, uh, nurses are uh, seldom called expats. And then we link that to gender. Then we link that to care work and to language issues. Marta, would you like to elaborate a little bit on that? I think you, I mean, you covered it pretty well there. And I think, you know, we were also reflecting on, on race, I think, in this context as well. But it really sort of, it came across, I think, most strongly with, with the sort of female part. So like Mika said, we did actually find some men. And Mika interviewed a couple of male nurses, but for both groups. And this reflects, you know, the composition in, in the sort of, 
nurse demographic anyway, that there aren't that many men. So it's it's also a gendered uh, issue, and and it's it was sort of striking, and we didn't you know we didn't do a systematic analysis of this, and we didn't ask the ask the nurses themselves about that how they safe label self label in terms of the expat label. We were more interested in the nurse label when we were discussing with them, but I think it's it was a sort of afterthought that we had that it, there's a skew here. Uh, and I think we both came away with a quite clear sense that there's a link between these professional identities as nurses uh, and how nursing is a medical profession, but it's very, very intertwined with care work and how that is still very much sort of ascribed as feminine. Uh, and so there's this very sort of strong gendered aspect here and how the way in which often the expat label is used, I think, I think personally, very often without much thought is sort of inadvertently, implicitly uh, gendered. That might be a naive take, but I think you know I would not necessarily uh, assume it's sort of malign and and patriarchal in a in a um, sort of explicit sense. But I think as very many of these structures, it's the implicit ways in which it just creeps in. Uh, and so this was a sort of not not something where we went out to look for at all, but it really became something we discussed a lot with Mirka uh, and wrote up this blog post on because we felt like this there's something wrong here. And, and especially with this sort of fact that nurse migration globally uh, is, is very much regional within Europe, of course, but we do also have quite a lot of nurse migration from the global south to the global north. And, uh, you know, with these skilled, you know, fantastic women wh whose, you know, work effort we need, why do we not value that more? And I think that was kind of the, you know, the sort of the point that we really wanted to make in that reflection. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really interesting, informative, and I think it's going to be extremely relevant in the future. I mean, we're not out of the pandemic yet. And, and as you say, I mean, we could face future global health crises. Um, I will put links to all of the, the blog posts and the articles that we talked about in the description. And uh, I hope people will read those as well because they're, they're very easy reading and they're uh, extremely interesting. So thank you both so much. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hauger. Music by Martha Venable.